I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, my wife Pam and I talked to Pat Gamble, an early proponent of women's ministry and one of the 30 would-be disciples who gathered in a living room in Boston and developed into the Boston Church of Christ. She shares how she came to Boston, what it was like at the beginning of the Boston movement, how she found her daughter that she had put up for adoption 23 years earlier, how she lost her husband, Bob Gamble, her views on women's ministry, and the current discussion of women's role in the church. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today on the program, I've got Pat Gemple from Pennsylvania. Pat was an instrumental uh, leader in the early days of the Boston Church, founder of Hope Worldwide, and I'm absolutely excited to be with her, as well as having my wife, Pam Skinner, join us today. Baby, great to be with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks, honey. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to see you, Pat. Pat, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Let's go ahead and get started here, Pat, and ask, let me ask you this question. How did you become a Christian? I became a Christian on Mother's Day of my 15th year in 1955. That makes me 81. Um, It's an interesting story. There was a Church of Christ across the street from my junior high. I walked to school and back every day with my best friend. I decided to walk to church on Sunday. I went um, to Sunday morning, then started going on Sunday night. And then I learned about the teen ministry And every Friday night, the teen ministry met to to create the church bulletin. And those days, it was a mimeograph machine. (laughs) So we, um, the friendships grew and my knowledge of the Bible grew. And various people started coming to church with me. The students in my junior high, my mother and father, my brother and sister, and other family members. And some of them became Christians. So um, as my faith grew, I decided that I needed to change my life and repent of sin and make Jesus Lord. So it was... um, a great journey that was a junior high and high school journey. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, so from there, how did you end up meeting Bob? Well, we have to fast forward 10 years. Okay. <laughs> he, he was my physics tutor at Wayne State University in Detroit. 
He was in a PhD program in physics and I was an undergraduate. There's a kind of a backstory. Um, I, gradu I graduated from high school at 16, was married at 17. Douglas Arthur, my son, was born in my 18th year. Kim Evans in my 20th year. I let my struggles and sin overcome me and I had really lost my way. This was before Rob was part of my life and bitterness crept into my life. I had lived my life my way and I, was, and I would, had failed miserably. <clears throat> I had to go to work after I divorced um, and I worked for General Motors and they offered to pay my tuition to college. Wow. I'd always uh, intended to go to college, but I was the first one to go to college in my family. And I started to school and I, I got one C and that was, I was awarded a scholarship to go to school after a while. And that C was in physics. And I knew that I would lose my scholarship if I didn't figure out how to do physics. <laughs> and my math background was really weak. <laughs> I, when I got that C, um, I knew I needed help from somebody. And so Rob became my tutor. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So he became my tutor, which eventually uh, led to us, him being my husband. Okay. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you got an A in physics. <laughs> he helped me find God again. He loved me and our three children. He loved all of us. And slowly, I came back to God. Um, I graduated in three years. Um, Phi Beta Kappa and found my husband. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a great story. Okay. So <laughs> let me just ask a little, I mean, to have three kids and go back to college, how did you manage that? Well, um, I went to school from, they, they were in, Kim was in kindergarten and my parents helped me. And I went to school from, I took classes from 10 o'clock to three o'clock. And um, my parents took care of Kim when she was in kindergarten. And then um, I would be home by the time the kids got home. Wow. So, and I would spend the time, I would, wasn't married when I was going to college and I would spend the time with them from the time they got home from school until they went to bed and then I'd do my homework. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. You didn't get much sleep then. No. And I went on the quarter system <laughs> and um, I had a 
few hours sleep during the quarter, but then I would sleep 12 hours a day, a night, <laughs> in the breaks, during wow. the breaks. Wow. That's impressive. Okay, so Pat, when did you come to Boston? Rob and I married in 1971. We were both in graduate school when we married. Um, later that year, he was uh, hired to work in a management training program. And after he um, took a graduate degree. And we moved from Detroit to Erie, Pennsylvania in 71. <clears throat> the family moved to Boston from Erie for him to take another graduate program in at the Harvard School of Public Health and Environmental Health. Wow. We began to go to the Lexington Church of Christ because when we married, he would he said it was a family thing to do, and we went to the Church of Christ, the mainline church. Um, when he came to go to um, Harvard, I got a job at Arthur D. Little, a consulting firm. In, um, and I look back on that and think God was preparing us to do his will. So that, that was how we came to Boston. But we were both working in the 70s and um, we managed the family and teenagers and both of us were working traveling jobs. Okay, so you were there in Boston in the Lexington Church. It was a small church, mainline church, but it just exploded. I mean, it took off. How did that happen? Like, what can you describe it? What went on there? How did it ignite in 1979? Well, I think about um, the scripture that God moves in mysterious ways, <laughs> his <laughs> blessings to unfold. I believe he works one day at a time and builds our faith bit by bit. So um, the 70s, were filled with a lot of activity. Um, and the way the 79 occurred, it actually started in 77. Um, Doug and Kim were in college and they came home for the summer in 77. Doug, had been growing in his faith at Duke University and Kim had been growing at the Crossroads Church of Christ in Florida. So it was kind of knitting together um, as they were in college. Doug came home and Kim came home in the summer of 77 and Doug began leading a devotional on Friday evenings at our house. And we had a few people come uh, from the Burlington Church and the Lexington Church. Not a, everybody, but just a few people. But that group included Alan Gloria Baird from Burlington and Stan and Betty Moorhead that you know from Lexington, 
church and us. And Doug and I have always had a very open relationship. We say what we think and we discuss any topic with truth as we see it at the time. <laughs> that's, that'll make Doug laugh. But um, my lukewarm relationship with God and my activities, I was in an MBA program at that time and I was working a traveling job all over the world in the developed world, uh, was a topic of one of our conversations. At the end of Doug's summer, we reached two conclusions. Rob said to me, Douglas is right and you are wrong. <laughs> you need to change. <laughs> it's two against and one. <laughs> the three couples decided that was the Moorheads and the Bairds and us decided that we would continue the devotionals when Doug went back to school. God had made, he, he was developing our faith individually and collectively. Mm. So it was those three couples that really helped us. Um, the other thing that happened in 77 is Rob and I were reaching out to some close friends that we wanted to become Christians who had no faith in God. We had a lunch at our house every Sunday in the afternoon after church. We talked about different philosophies of religion. None of our friends became disciples. And Rob and I could see that we didn't know how to study the Bible with anybody. Wow. And so with the with the permission of the elders in the Lexington church, we started looking for someone that um, could help us learn to study the Bible. And I think the Holy Spirit led us. To answer your question specifically, our search ended with Kip and Elena McKean coming to Concord on June 1st, 1979. Kip was 25 years old. Gosh, wow. <laughs> and they came from a campus ministry in Illinois that was led by Roger Lamb. 300 campus students had become disciples under Kip and Elena's leadership. Wow. And that was, <laughs> they obviously knew how to study the Bible with somebody. So the McKeans lived at our house for three months with Doug and Kim when they were home for um, college and home from college in 79. Rob was working at the time at the School of Public Health, Harvard School of Public Health. I was working at Arthur D. Little and we had a sign-up sheet for dinner that I cooked after we came after I after work. The limit was 12 people. <laughs> we couldn't have more than 12. <laughs> wow. But with Doug and Kim and the McKeans, <laughs> that was um, we started with 
six people. So we could only have six visitors at an, a night. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a hot summer in many ways. Wow. God was building his family. Kip preached the word with great passion and love. We were challenged by God's word. The Holy Spirit helped us grow, particularly on the campuses in Cambridge and Boston. And I think the heart of what's happened for the last 40 years really started on the campuses in Cambridge and Boston. Um, God drew us together. We prayed and fasted and ate together with glad and sincere hearts as we read about in Acts 2, 42 and following. The first church was planted in Chicago by Marty and Chris Fuquay. The second was planted in London by Doug and Joyce and Jim, with the help of Jim and Tanya Lloyd. The third was in New York with Stephen Leeson Johnson. The Holy Spirit was moving to unite us with his word and his Holy Spirit. And God led us. So... That's the beginning. Wow. You know, Pat, you have been an inspiration to many strong women. I mean, I can I can remember that so clearly. Uh, who who inspired you? Um, I've always learned from brothers and sisters. And I think back to when my mother died. Um, my mother was an inspiration to me because my, my father died when I was two and she was left a widow. And she always persevered and she was a light of love. And <laughs> She didn't become a disciple actually until she was in her seventies, but, but she believed in God, but she didn't, she started going to church with me when I was a teenager, but she was very devoted as a mother and as a courageous woman. Um, When Kip and Elena came, we became really best friends. And I learned a lot from Elena and about the women's ministry. Because, and she had learned that in crossroad, at Crossroads. And, um, and Kim, I learned from everybody around me, but Friendship made such a difference and real relationships that are based in truth and love is what God teaches us mm. in the word. Pat, can you name some of the people that you were discipling back there in the late 70s, early 80s? Because I know there's a lot of powerful women that you were working with. Well, essentially... 
most of the strong-willed women (laughs) would use he chose my discipleship partners and mostly they were single women and we had a discipleship group and we all learned from each other I mean but I would work with probably a half a dozen women at a time and also study the Bible with another half a dozen at at a time. But um, Barbara Porter was one of the strongest willed women and you know Barbara. (laughs) 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 And of course, Elena and I worked together side by side and I, I never chose a discipleship partner. Hmm. Kip always chose them. Wow. Pat, what's your view on the women's role in the church? I have never, I have never questioned this because the word is so clear to me Hmm. that women were created as helpers to men. Right. And I, I have been had the experience of using the talent that God gave me without any hesitation that my husband was in charge of our marriage and the brothers are in charge of the church and I interact with them respectfully and I I just don't understand because women in the United States have so many freedoms. I I don't understand this um, because I haven't experienced it. I I just, I mean, I, (laughs) I've given advice to multinational presidents of companies (laughs) and one of the last one of the last assignments I had at Arthur D. Little was to evaluate the intangible assets of a multinational Italian based company now I worked with people in Boston in London, in Paris, and we worked for the president of this company. And it was on five continents, the, their, their company. And <laughs> are, are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> that was the experience in the 70s. And it was one of the, one of the hardest jobs that I ever did but I was leading the team. What are, what are we talking about? Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's so much unrest among the women. What are they talking about? Yeah. I mean, that's not, God doesn't, he just wants it to do it his way. Mm. Yeah. So that is one of the hot topics is 
women preaching, leading churches. That's but a- I don't think they should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really don't think they should do that mm-hmm. because that's not God's plan. Right. The apostles were all men. Well, I will say that is one of the things that I've always respected about you because coming into the church as a single woman that I had, you know, very strong opinions, strong ideas. Um, you know, when I looked at you and Elena and even Gloria, you guys were very strong women. I mean, I didn't see a man lead a Bible discussion until we were married. I mean, in the campus ministry, all, it was all the women, women led, and it and it was but wonderful. Women leads women, right? Exactly, and it was so powerful and effective. And but that's Titus too. Mm-hmm. That's Titus too. And I can't, um, I can't get beyond Titus too. Mm-hmm. Women are to lead women. Right. Half of the people in the world are women. Right. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, you might have to write another book, Pat. One on your life and one on your perspective of the women's ministry going forward. One of the things that amazes me is that you were working full-time this whole time. You're traveling, working. How do you disciple six people, (laughs) study the Bible with six people, and work a consulting job during the day? Like, Just how did you do that? Well, you have to go back to the 70s. Well, and maybe you have to go back earlier than that. But I've always been energetic and healthy. That's a blessing from God. Um, But Rob and I worked two full-time consulting jobs in the 70s. And we were had teenagers. So we learned to plan well and take life one day at a time. And Rob and I balanced our schedule, traveling schedule in the 70s so that our teenagers would never be left home alone. Kim learned to cook during that time for the three of them. She's still a very creative cook. (laughs) um, it's, It's interesting to watch her life because she wears me out. <laughs> um, but Kip and Elena, um, when they came, I was part of three Bible talks. One at Arthur D. Little, attended by Rob and led by Kip. One women's group that I led, um, just a women's group. And one on Monday night at our house, led by Rob. That one at our house included a potluck dinner every week. Wow. Um, We could have not imagined what God would do through our mustard seed of faith. Both of us did change jobs in the 80s, though, because we decided to form our own company, International Health Services, um, in his service is the abbreviation for that, because we wanted more flexibility to to do ministry, and we employed mostly disciples. Tom Briscoe, that you 
likely know, was one of our keys to success. Um, we later sold that company and began working full-time in the ministry. But um, when it, things would get tough, we would take a day to pray and fast in our conference room mm-hmm. <laughs> because things did get tough from time to time. Okay, so you were work, um, you were working for a company, and then you decided you needed more flexibility with your time, so you yeah, started yeah. a business. Right. Oh, my gosh. In the 80s. Wow. So we started a company that we eventually, it was a database company. Can you believe in the 80s? And I don't <laughs> understand the computer really well. Maybe... At uh, age four level or five, <laughs> but but it was a team, and we had to work together and listen to one another, and it was all part of our training. I think. Mm. Wow. But it it was a worldwide team. Wow. Wow. Now, Pat, how did you come up with the idea of a more active women's ministry role? I mean, that's obviously had just a huge, huge impact. Right. Because, because before that, the, you'd have the preacher in a, in a mainline church, but the the wife typically would not be active in the ministry from what I understand. Can you, I mean, that's something. I think, I I think it's the team approach and, and we had such close relationships with the McKeans and the Bairds and different people that came through uh, the ministry. And, and everybody did what they could do. And the Women's Discipleship Conference is a really important part of this picture. Um, they started in 1980 when Kip and Elena came to uh, Boston. And Elena led the first one in 1980. And I remember there were 100 women there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one in Boston, the Women's Discipleship Conference, was in 1991. So 11 years. And then they spread around to different parts of the country and the world. But that 11 years changed the women's ministry. And it wasn't. It wasn't just that. I mean, it wasn't just that conference that lasted essentially eight days. Because it started with the ministry people, women, coming back to Boston. And I think you probably remember that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even living in the Middle East, we would not miss that, that women's time in Boston, we all came back for it. It was so, so important. I, I just believe that that conference set up the 90s. Mm-hmm. That conference that ended in 91, the last, <clears throat> well, the, the women's conference in, influenced me greatly I have to give credit to Elena for starting it in the 80s. I learned from her. By June 83, we organized the first New England Women's Inspiration Day. 
The title was Jesus, My Power to Become. There were 14 lessons, 42 teachers, and discussion leaders from 17 churches. By 1984, the Lexington Church had become the Boston Church. The women wrote a book. The title is, is actually in the, the Disciples Today, The Upward Call, Challenges, Challenges for Today's Christian Woman. And in the preface, there's Philippians 3, 13 through, and 14. It says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal or the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think the Holy Spirit moved um, to prepare us. The last Women's Discipleship Conference in 1991, the subject was the time has come. A write-up appeared in the Boston Bulletin and you can check this out because they're all on the website. In March of the 24th of 1991, 9,000 women attended that Saturday's Women's Day. And 1,600 women disciples from Boston with the brothers' help hosted 2,500 of their friends. And they met with disciples, women disciples from all over the world. Perhaps um, the impact, I'm, I'm quoting this, was from a, a woman from another congregation. She said, I feel like this was just for me. I feel refreshed and encouraged like never before. I came in with my confidence being at an all-time low, questioning whether I should be in the ministry. I had not remembered past victories. Now feeling 100% encouraged and having tons of practicals and knowing that we are going through this together, I'm ready to go back, be a great wife, a great mother, and build a ministry for God. Wow. So I wow. think that was an incredible <laughs> time of growth for the women. And that probably is the series of meetings that really changed the women's mm -hmm. ministry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. Before we go forward in time, I'd like to talk a little bit about the 30 would-be disciples in the living room in Lexington, because that's something I grew up on spiritually hearing about so many times. I mean, that got repeated hundreds, if not thousands of times. Can you talk about what was your experience, your recollection of the 30 would-be disciples in the living room in that in June of 1979? <laughs> um, that's a fond memory. Um, first of all, we had no idea what God was going to do. We were just 30 people that wanted to follow God. And in some ways, you can think about the early church plannings. 
we wanted to grow. And the early church plantings were made up of not 30, more like 12 <laughs> that were willing to go and just see what God would do. And that 30 um, would-be disciples was an outgrowth of those devotionals that we had mm -hmm. um, in 77 right. and 78. And, and then finding someone to, to teach us how to study the Bible and how to imitate Christ. So it was just a that that was the outgrowth of that group and those groups. And I believe that's what we learn from Peter and Paul and the apostles in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. um, because they just had courage and went. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Pat, you, you talked about how before that you realized you didn't know how to study the Bible with people. How can you talk about? Did Kip bring the first principles series? Did you come up with it together? Where you, this is something that it's it's kind of been central to our movement. Where'd that come from? Well, you know, it was it started. Um, it started actually in Crossroads, I think, but the apostles, we did come up with it over the years in Boston, refined it. Um, but I think about when I'm studying, I'm studying with a woman from India, a woman from Russia, <laughs> and uh, another person here. You, you have to learn how to meet people where they're where they are. When you study from with someone that's raised in most Christian religions, they really don't know about the Book of Acts. They don't know the basics. They don't know how to tie the Gospels together. A lot of them don't even know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, they they've never read it. And I believe that that what came back is how you do it in the book of Acts and what came into my consciousness. Now, God's known it for, what, 2,000 mm -hmm. plus years. But you have to figure out what to read with somebody right. that will help them to develop their faith. Mm -hmm. And it's... For you and I, it's very simple, but that's because we know what the word baptism means. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that we need to read it. We know that we need to put Christ's example into practice. We've learned how to help the poor, mm -hmm. you know, in different places, but it basically just comes back to faith in God. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I find it just powerful because the first principle series whoever originated it maybe it was just over time slowly I, i'd love to know if anyone does know who 
came up with the first model of the first principles, but it unites our family of churches. It's so smart. You start with the foundation of God's word, then you talk about discipleship and what it means to follow Christ, and then you go into sin and light and darkness, and it's it's powerful. It's a great way to present the gospel. But I, I think it's made such a huge difference in pulling all of our churches together because you understand that everyone who's gone through that series pretty much has a basic understanding of what it means to be a sold-out disciple of Jesus. Right. Okay, let's go ahead and keep going here, Pat. Okay. You know, uh, Pat, I, I remember this this Women's Day that was, was so powerful when you talked about you know, giving up uh, your child for adoption. And so you found a child, you'd given up for adoption at birth. You know, how did that happen? I remember that was such a life-changing Women's Day when you shared that. That I'll never, ever forget that. That was, that was amazing. It was a miracle of God, the way that happened. <clears throat> In 1988, God worked a miracle in our life. Uh, and there were few people that knew about a daughter that I had given up for adoption. My husband, of course, um, ironically, he was born on the same day, September 29th, um, as Roxanne was born. Wow. And she wow. didn't know her birthday because somehow she thought she was born on September 30th, but I knew that it was September 29th. And so it was funny. Um, Doug and Kim knew about it and my parents knew about it. And that was the number of people that knew about Roxanne's um, birth and her adoption. In 1988, some of the people in Boston were questioning the baptism or the conversion of um, people that were not baptized as a part of the International Churches of Christ. And I was baptized in my 15th year. So it was some close friends got together. Roger Lamb was in that group, actually. Um, and we talked through my conversion. And we all decided that I had been converted to Christ and I knew about repentance and what baptism was about and I needed to go. Um, so the conversion was settled. But as a part of that discussion, I revealed to that small group of friends and disciples that there was something in my life that I had hidden the birth and adoption of my second daughter. So that came out in that discussion. The following week, I was working with Elena and others and we were preparing for the Women's Discipleship Conference. <clears throat> we expected about 3,000 women in that in, in 1998, I'm sorry. And I was assigned the topic of woman, why are you crying? Which is comes, it's 
mentioned in John 20, 15. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> in that speech, I shared that why I had cried for 23 years was because I had a daughter that was put up for adoption. (laughs) Rob used to make a joke because he said for every year of our marriage, for 23 years before, he he had a sad birthday Mm. (laughs) because I was always in tears. I talked about sin and righteousness and I asked the audience to pray with me that somehow Mm. a disciple would meet my daughter wherever she was that I could be with her in heaven. And we prayed. And someone in the audience came up and said, do you want to find your daughter? And I said, of course. But I hadn't thought about it. I didn't think that there was any possibility of doing that. She said, I can help you find her because I found my birth mother. Three months later, on May 23rd, we met Roxanne. Wow. Wow. And the next Father's Day in June, um, Kim and Walter and Doug and Joyce met her as well. So it was absolute gift from God. I was honest at that women's discipleship conference Mm -hmm. and in 88 in March and God gave us more than we can ask or imagine. Her her adoptive parents are disciples. Her uh, husband's brother is a disciple, faithful disciple and it's just amazing what God did. Wow. So where was she and and what, what was going on with her at the time? She lived in Illinois. Um, or no, not Indiana with her husband and his family. And they moved, um, to live with us. came in July and lived with us and became disciples um, by the fall. I don't remember the exact date. And then her parents, her adopted parents moved to Boston as well, and they became disciples at the Boston, in the Boston church. How did, how did that person find Roxanne? I mean, no, no Google back then, no internet, nothing yeah, like well, that. What, Adoption records are kept forever. (laughs) And the first thing that we did was I had the name of the adoption agency. And I wrote a letter to the adoption agency. And as God 
God revealed, they sent back an answer. Roxanne had written a letter herself to the adoption agency and they redacted certain parts that they thought were identifying information. Um, but I found out that they had been part of the Nazarene church. And so I started investigating how to find the Nazarene church. And there was a book of their, the Nazarene ministers at the time. And I talked to somebody in the office and they were kind enough to send me the book. So I went through every page of the book and <laughs> Rob said, I've never seen you study anything like that book, mm -hmm. except the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> he made a joke of it, but um, I figured out there were two couples that could have had Roxanne. When I went through the whole book, I only found two couples that I thought might be her parents. Um, so I called both of them. Mm. And one of the lines in the letter that Roxanne had written was that she was a ventriloquist. So I asked if I only talked to the Sharps, actually. Um, I asked Charles Sharp, her adoptive parent, uh, father. I, I told him the story and I said, I would like your permission to contact your daughter. Would you please give me that? And he did. So on May 23rd, 1988, I was able to talk to her. What was that like? Yeah, gosh. Well, I was, all of us were so happy. <laughs> Douglas and his style. He said, now, mother, don't blow it. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer, the answer to the, I listened to his podcast. The answer to your question about how did you develop your sense of humor? I, I sent this, a note to Doug about this. He was born with it. Mm. He was he was very, he started talking when he was nine months old. Oh my gosh. And by two, he was making us laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he had such a sense of humor. He was born with it. It was a gift from God. Um, and he kept us entertained mm -hmm. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know of a funnier preacher or a person I've, uh, that I've ever met. Just hilarious. Well, but, you know, he said in that he never makes a joke. He doesn't tell a joke. He's so quick. Mm -hmm. And he makes a joke out of things that are going on at the moment. That's, right. Right. that's his trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he does a great job with that. Yeah, he does. So you, you obviously didn't blow it in your, your first conversation no. with her. It went well. <laughs> it went well. Did you, did you call her? Did you go meet her personally? Uh, we called her. 
at first, the, the, the 23rd, but then we met her personally. Um, and <laughs> um, we met her in Indianapolis with Eddie and Rob got there first and he brought her a dozen roses. And I actually have a letter from that, that Rob wrote. I wrote, had written her a letter. I'll read a few lines. Dear Roxanne, we're on the plane home. You're going to have to pray for me. Mm. <laughs> so I read this. And been reflecting on the past day and a half and marveling at what God has done. Wow. We are amazed and grateful. Your mother's eyes have been filled with tears, almost to overflowing. As we've talked about our feelings and impressions, she's asleep now with her Bible open <laughs> in her lap to Isaiah 51, 9 through 16. Mm. Oh my gosh. I can't. Wow. He was so grateful. We are so grateful and thankful that God has given you back to us. Wow. Wow. And I was coming from San Francisco at a business meeting that was um, part of the I was meeting with the head of pharmacies from a dozen of the best hospitals in the United States. And we were developing an, the idea of this database company that we had started. So <laughs> God just moved in mysterious ways, his blessings to unfold. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, thanks for sharing that, that letter. Yeah. So that's, that's an amazing miracle. One that goes down in the, in the legend of the early days there of Absolutely. our movement, for sure. Yes. How, how did you guys start Hope Worldwide? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit? I've, I know I talked to Doug about it. Can you just give your side of, of the, the founding of Hope Worldwide? Well, it did start... Um, it did start with his message in um, and he pointed out because of their work in India and in other regions of the British Commonwealth region of the church he pointed out that we weren't doing enough to help the poor. And that was definitely part of Jesus's ministry. And it did start with that sermon at the Boston, in the Boston Garden. Um, and people just 
were cut to the heart and realized that there was a sin of omission that we had um, been guilty of. So it wasn't till 1991 that Rob and I were asked by the world sector leaders to work with the churches to develop um, as many programs for the poor as we could. And <laughs> it always tells a story. We had three fledgling product uh, projects at that time. One was Richard Reingold's in the Reingold family in Mexico City. They were working with trash sorters. One was the Ottweiler's um, efforts in on the continent of Africa, particularly in Abidjan, um, to help HIV and AIDS patients. And the third was an adoption agency that had started in Atlanta. And Hip always quotes me as saying, so there are three programs and we can figure out what to do with them in six months. What I didn't understand is how God was going to move with all of the churches to want to do programs all over the world. So when we were, when we we had a budget of five hundred thousand dollars when we were asked to do this, and um, seventeen years later, we had a a budget of fifty million. Wow. God did many miracles. And I have a list. Of what happens. By 2001, it was the 10th anniversary of, of hope. Um, we were working in 200 cities, in 80 nations. We were emphasizing volunteerism, health and education, children and seniors. All the programs were trademarked in the US and they were organized under the leadership of the country where they were operating. We were approved by the United Nations. We had a five-star charity rating by Charity Navigator. We were funded by the USAID, corporations in the nations where we were working, international donors, 4% of the ICOC weekly contributions, and hundreds and hundreds of private donors. We had built a village of hope in New Delhi that was a thousand leprosy patients and their families. Hope for children and in at the 10th anniversary had adopted 300 orphans, most from China. 
in Cambodia in 1996, we had developed a hospital that was for the poor. Now there's two hospitals and 10 clinics and it's all self-supporting. Um, the health corps had been in LA, Jamaica, Hong Kong, Phnom Penh. The youth corps was helping teens and college students go all over the world. And uh, the volunteer corps, the sports festivals in Moscow, orphanages and family centers in India, Indonesia, Romania, Moscow, Berlin, Paris. The Unity Award had been given to Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Jiminy and Rosalind Carter, and later to um, Queen Noor of Jordan. The immunization rates in the United States had been changed. Um, there were 60 cities in the US and a million children were helped every year. It was amazing to see what God had done in just 10 years. And it was because of the efforts of the disciples and the way they reached out to others. But probably the easiest to understand is 500,000 to 50 million. That's amazing. Now, Pat, you had, was, meant, you had mentioned that your, your training in the 70s prepared you for the work in hope. Can you talk about how that benefited you? Well, um, <laughs> I say that I traded in my high heels for Birkenstocks. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Because I have, Rob and I have probably flown two and a half million miles. Wow. Because we, in the 70s, both of us traveled all over the developed world. And most of my clients, he, he was doing research for Harvard um, in the School of Public Health. And I was working with presidents of multinational companies. So what that did is it put us in touch with people in the world that made a difference and that set up the kind of um, work that we needed to do <clears throat> in Hope Worldwide because we needed to work with people that were very instrumental in underdeveloped countries. Um, and for example, the village of hope is a reality in 2000, the end of 2017, first of 2018, we went back to India and met with Padma Venkatraman, the daughter of the sitting president of India when the village of hope was started in India and in Delhi. People had recovered and Doug shared about this uh, in his podcast, but 
everybody was working. What he didn't share was that that year, the country of India had declared leprosy patient, uh, leprosy a disease of the past. Wow. I don't believe that because it starts in the slums and you don't have health statistics in the slums, but um, when you, you needed to work with people in high places, uh, for example, to do the work that we did in the, in Cambodia, it was the king of Cambodia that hosted us. Mm. He opened the doors to that country. Now, he didn't become a Christian, but he, he contributed to the Siena Hospital all the years he was alive. Wow. And he had a chance. Mm -hmm. But I think the work in the 70s, God was working. He was preparing us to do the work in the in the 90s, mm. the 80s and the 90s. Mm. Wow. When you look back at the impact of Hope Worldwide and how it's continued to grow, how does that make you feel? Yeah. You know, I'm humbled by it because God forgives and forgets. And he is so powerful. that we just need to remember that his Holy Spirit will lead us where we need to go. It's, it's humbling though. When you look back, you can see how God's worked. And I, when I look back, I can just see how God worked. Mm. So to him be the glory. What three things have contributed to the impact of your life? I mean, you, uh, just meeting you, knowing you from the past, like a, you are a powerful woman and have been for a long time. What three, what three things would you say have contributed to it? Well, from the other things I've said already, um, you probably know what I think is first. God, his spirit, his word, Christ's example, that's first. He teaches us not to be a victim, but to live our lives as forgiven, powerful people led by him. And I, in the 1990, I wrote a little, oh, it was a few lessons about, I refuse to be a victim. Mm -hmm. So if I could, we, we're not victims. We're a product of our righteousness and sin, you know. If we could get that in balance, that's the first thing. The second is um, God gives us the church, and we can have real friends in the church that are friends that have sent our have centered their life on trying to please God. 
And the third is he also gives us a family. I mean, he the church is a family, but he gives us a close family and reasons to, he gives us a plan to build a family, both inside and outside the church. So that's my, that's my three things. For, for decades, it was Bob and Pat Gamble, Bob and Pat Gamble. You call him Rob. Did you, was that interchangeable or? (laughs) No. Well, you'll laugh at this. My first husband's name was Bob. Oh, okay. His mother called Robert Gamble was he was called by his mother, Rob, and his family. So I started calling him Rob because <laughs> I didn't want to get confused with Bob. And But everybody else called him Bob. But in the family, we called him Rob. <laughs> or Papa. <laughs> mm. oh. you, lost, you lost Rob or, or Bob a couple of years ago. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Mm. Well, I'll start with a funny thing. Our whole family thought that he would outlive all of us, including the kids. I mean, Doug and Kim and Roxanne and Walter and Joyce all thought that he would be the last one to go of us. But he was the first one to go. So that... He died in 45 minutes of a brain aneurysm. From the, we were having coffee at 8:30. By 9:15, he was gone. So that was a, that was a big shock for all of us. <clears throat> and I have to say that I wasn't prepared for that. Um, So two years later, um, in order to get through that, because we were we were totally bonded, and he would do one thing and I would do another, and making up for just one of us being left here, <laughs> and he was the smarter one of us. Um, I had no idea how much he did for the family and how difficult it was going to be to lose him. I, but I, I know he's absolutely know that he's with God in the presence of all love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and self-control. He's in a happy place. So... I try to remind myself that when I feel sad, <clears throat> that I'm being selfish because he's in a good place. So I've ad- adapted a bit. Um, but I have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. So Pat, you were just having coffee with him in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> For years, I would bring him coffee. 
but in the last couple of years, he would, he would get up before me and bring me coffee. So, and then we would pray together and start the day together and, and just sit in the bed. And so for a little bit, so at eight 30, he came up and brought me a cup of coffee and he had a cup of coffee. And by quarter to nine, he said, I feel weird. I don't know what it is. And, but he said, my head feels strange. And we decided to go to the ER. And we prayed at 9.10. By 9.15, he was gone. Right after we prayed. So that's a good way to, to leave, I think, <laughs> praying. Wow. Yeah. But it was uh, by 10 o'clock, I knew that there was no hope because we had we called an ambulance. I, I called the ambulance because I couldn't get him downstairs. And then we prayed and then he was gone. So he passed in your home. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So Pat, what, what advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? Mm. I would start with pray without ceasing because God will lead you if you have faith in him, that's what I think. Mm. And when you get confused, talk to people's in people in the in the church, and get their input on your life, as I've found that that works one hundred percent of the time. Mm. Um. But I, I just go to people that I really trust that are really working to um, please God with their life and are deep into the scriptures because not everybody has what I call the ring of truth. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they're not, they're communicating opinion, not god's will you you have to be praying to find god's will right so pat i i want to ask if you know if you were in charge right now of the icoc they said pat you're you know (laughs) you're the boss we're looking to you for guidance wisdom direction um what would you say? What would what advice would you give? How we can get the ICOC to grow and continue to make a huge impact? Um, I think we need to constantly go to to God in prayer and study His Scripture, because I don't 
I don't hear much about daily times with God. Mm. And I, I know that there are people that have a daily time with God. But the question about how do you adjust, I decided that I would spend two hours with God every day. And I've pretty much done that for the last two years because the changes that I needed to make were incredible to me. So I believe that we need to take that to heart. Mm -hmm. We need to see that this life is given to us so that we can choose where we're going to be for eternity. Mm -hmm. That puts everything in perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. As a Rob's death, I have, as I said, I have no doubt that he's with God. But what is the other alternative? The other alternative is that you have nothing of God left. So it's a, it's a clear decision what we need. Did you... You started this two hours a day with God after the loss of your husband? Yes. Wow. Okay. Now, I did things for God, but I never spent two hours in prayer and studying his word before. Mm-hmm. What changes have you seen? Mm. How has it helped? Well, he um, he leads me in every aspect of my life. I it, he leads me more in my Bible studies with people. I think I understand both Christians and non-Christians more now than I did ever in my life. Um. He's led me in decision-making, like in one day, we, there was some homework done by my sister, but um, moving from, to the apartment that I now live in, which is the right time, because I was spending too much time keeping up with um, 4,000 square foot house. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I just didn't have enough hours in the day to keep up with that because Rob did so much. So there's a lot of changes. That, and the my brother died this year. I had two major surgeries. I just can't keep up with a house that big. And mm-hmm. so it's time to make a change. I, so changes like physical changes, spiritual changes, it's really helped me to do that. Pat, if you could be remembered by one sentence, how would you like to be remembered? 
That's a good question. God is God and I am not. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Would you mind, as we just finish up here, sharing a few of your go-to scriptures, scriptures that you go back to over and over again? One is John 17, the John chapter 17. It's Jesus's prayer for unity, Mm. unity in our own family, unity in the church, unity among the believers. He knows that um, humankind wants to do it their way. Mm -hmm. And I've been one that messed up my life by doing it my way. Um, So that's one, John 17. And that that's one that we all need to continually work on. Mm -hmm. Romans, the 12th chapter is uh, like the chapter I go to when I'm having a hard time. Mm. And first John four is one that I always remember 16 through 21 and the You all know that scripture. In this world, we're to be like him. Mm. And Jesus is an example of a prayer warrior, right? Mm -hmm. And a servant of of all people, whether they respond to him or not. And at the end, at, at right at the end of his life when he prayed, God forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful statement. Right. Well, Pat, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you, Pat. It's a real treasure. I got to share with you something we've learned from you. You made a comment. I don't, I don't, this is probably 20 plus years ago about prayer. And you said, Hey, when you say, I'm going to pray for you, don't just pray later, just pray right then. And, and you said that you pray, you know, on the spot. And, and that's, that's something Pam and I have Mm -hmm. put into our lives. That's been really awesome is we just say, Hey, let's just pray right now about it. Let's Mm -hmm. not wait till later, if ever, but let's do it right now. Yeah, that's really true. In the fellowship at church, you know, people will obviously come up and say, I have this need or, you know, could you, you know, remember to pray for me But yeah, you're right. So often we'll just go, well, let's just, let's just do it right now. Why wait? Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you, Pat. That's good. <laughs> How did you come up I'm with glad that? that? I'm glad that you have put that into practice. That's God is God and I am not. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great example. Yeah. It's a great yeah. example. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Pat. And Absolutely. thank you for so much for your life and example. Yes, you've been an inspiration. You know, I uh, I always feel so privileged to be able to tell people that I became a Christian in the Boston church, you know, back in that great year of 1984, you know, but to be able to just, you know, be from there and to 
just see what you've done and accomplished and the example that you've been for so many women around the world. Just very, very grateful for your life. Well, thanks for your kind words. But, you know, I really believe that God did it. Mm -hmm. God did it. Yeah. And we, I just went along for the ride. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Pat. Yeah, thank you. All right. God bless you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.